You can take your copy of God's Word and you can open it up to the book of Revelation. As we continue looking at, well, really, in some sense, begin looking at these seven churches, but continue looking at the book as a whole as we look at Revelation chapter 2 this morning. As you get there, we'll go ahead and just read our passage. We're going to take it church by church, so not long sections, but there is a lot. Um, We've argued from the beginning of this study that book of Revelation is a very practical book. Yes, it is a prophetic book, but very much so. And it's not just chapters two and three that talk about churches, which I think we can identify in both strengths and weaknesses with each one of these churches. Hopefully, maybe not, um, you know, uh, Laodicea or, uh, you know, where the lukewarm or the dead church, hopefully not in those cases, but in many ways with Ephesus in their strengths and their weaknesses, and we're going to learn a lot through these, but even more so, the return of Christ is very practical for the way we live our lives. But let's look together just at our section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, this is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot bear with those who are evil and you put to test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and you also have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we do come now as we look to study your word, uh, your revelation, and understand even here your revelation to a specific church in Ephesus at a specific time in the life of that church, but understand there are implications for the church's across the ages, including ours, things that we can learn and things that we can grow in, things we can repent of. And I just pray that we would see those things this morning, be encouraged, but also be quick to hear and to listen when we see those things that are true, even if difficult to hear. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, there are records that you do not want to be known for. There are records broken that are embarrassing. If you guys are baseball fans and you watched Aaron Judge break Roger Maris's record, and some people would say, you know, it should have been a bigger deal, and they don't count the Mark McGuire, although I love that era of baseball, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, but he broke the record, hitting 60 home runs, at least the Yankees record, and that is an amazing accomplishment within baseball, and it was kind of fun to watch it from a distance. But you don't want to be the guy known 
for being the one who has the most strikeouts. And if you are a baseball player and you keep stats, because that's what baseball players do, or baseball fans, then you start to go, but they keep that, right? And so you may know the name Aaron Judge, but you probably don't know the name Mark Reynolds. And he is that player who's known for that. 2009, I think it was 233 strikeouts, not from a, he didn't pitch them, right? He struck out. You don't want to be known for that. If you're a Husker fan, you're no stranger to this. Seems like every week, every season, we break records. It's never been done before. It's been 60 years since this has happened. The quarterback's never played like that. Best game of his career. And you go, yes. But it's not the kind of record that is good. You don't want to be the team that has lost the most one-score games ever. But that's us, if you're a Husker fan. And there's other records. Uh, this week, I was reminded we have a little bit of a, a game. I don't know if it's a game really in our household, but it, it seems to be comical at this point. But every time Ashley, and sometimes I go, but a lot of times it's just her, maybe one or two kids, will go to Costco. And we swipe the card at the end. And, and I'm always asking her when she gets home, did we break the record? How much was it? You guys know the inflation, how it goes. It seems every year now, it's not just inflation in our case. I have boys growing, and so they keep eating more. And we broke a record this week. And so that's not like a good thing. Obviously, it's, it's a bad record. But what about, you think about it as a church, think about theologically, what about the record for being the most theologically sound church? That sounds good. I would like that. I'd like to be known for that. But how about the loveless church? How about a church that has no love? I don't really want to be known for that. And so like every single human being and in every single church, there's some good news and there's some bad news. There's some good things and there's some not so good things. And each of the churches we're going to look at is, is kind of known for something. And most of the time, five of the times, it's, it's pretty much going to be this negative thing. And then they're going to be maybe commended for, here's a positive, And then there is going to be a rebuke. And the first one of those is the church at Ephesus. Because they're going to be commended for these things that they do really well. But then along with what they do really well, he's going to have at least one thing. And just because it's one doesn't mean it's not important. In fact, he's going to give them multiple things they're really good at. But the one thing is stinging and is serious and fatal, in essence, is what Jesus, as he walks among the churches, is going to say, if you don't fix this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. We're going to kind of look and answer the question of what does that mean? Somewhere along the way in this church, They went from, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but if you you do your own study, they're they're pretty much as a letter, uh, as epistles go, there's no sounder church than the church at Ephesus. So if you go read the book of Ephesians, you're going to be radically encouraged by the church at Ephesus. They are doctrinally sound. Paul gives them grand theology, chapters one through three, and and how to practice those things. But somewhere... This is perhaps 40 years later, something has gone amiss. Something has gone awry. And they've gone from being this very fruitful, ripe church to a church that has become rotten. Another reminder this morning of Costco is I was making coffee and we have a little basket in our pantry that has different fruits. And yes, avocado is a fruit. 
And I saw the avocados there and they are bright green and, you know, as hard as could be. And I don't know if you guys are like this, but we tend to forget about our avocados. We like guacamole just as much as the rest of anyone, but somehow they always end up in the refrigerator and you go and you reach and they're really soft and I go, we need to use these. And I cut into it and it's always that kind of 50-50 because it's soft, you know, is it going to still look green and edible or is it going to look gross? Because I don't know why, but avocados look absolutely gross the minute they are moved from that kind of moment of ripeness to rottenness. And that's kind of how I view what can happen to individuals and what can happen here, it seems, to a church itself. They had a period where it was ripe, where it was going wonderfully. And there's a fine line between, oh, we were doing things correct and doing well and have spiritually become rotten. And the good news is there's hope in this passage. There's a call to repentance. They can turn back. It's, it's not like the avocado that can't go backwards. But even for the church and for those in the church, your spiritual life can ultimately become rotten, if not cultivated. And each one of us is going to face that peril, and each church is going to face that peril of the fire of our love for Jesus Christ fading. And so we're going to encounter Ephesus this morning and hopefully learn a little bit about those dangers of leaving, quote, our first love, which is really interesting because you want a little, honestly, as I studied, I want a little more description because I have to kind of think about this and go, well, what is the first love? That's kind of the first study question that, that pops in to this. And you're not left with something super specific. It seems there's just a general consensus. It's their love for Christ, which I think is, is right, but it's almost intentionally left a little murky of which way in which is, is, it lo- is it lost? Is it a loss of love for Christ, Christ and his people? Is it, a, is it a loss of this desire to not only be devotional or doctrinal, but, but they've lost the desire to do it in a way that is with the wrong motivation? kind of pulls us back into where we talked in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, that they're probably doing outward actions, but with the wrong motivation. So he's saying, this is good, 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 but Christ doesn't just want you to do outward actions. He just wants you to attend church, check, and then go on with your life. He actually wants these things to be part of your heart and your desire. And so we're going to see over the next few weeks this address of seven different churches. And the first one is Ephesus. And we are, I just put it in a sentence, going to be encouraged to not forget our love for Christ and one another. There's going to be, I think, a little branch off of all those implications. But it's good that we protect God's truth. It is good that we discern good from evil like the church at Ephesus. But it is easy to forget why we are doing it in the first place, and whom we are doing it for. And so hopefully this morning, we're going to learn from this and be encouraged by this as we study together. Well, in verses one through three, there's good news. Good cop, bad cop scenario here. He's going to encourage them. It's probably good kind of, um, this is obviously Jesus who is doing this, um, who is, who's perfect in every way. And he, I don't know where they're at as, as a church, but it's always nice to hear someone come in and probably say one, two, three, four good things before they, they lay the hammer. And it's even kind that he, he kind of layways them with one bad reason, which of course, it, it cuts so deep that 
it seems that it's worse than dozens of things. But it's first, chapter two, verse one, this is addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, write. So John, you have this vision. I want you to write this, send this with the angel of the church. Now we talked about who are the angels, uh, just one verse above as the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand. And the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Those who weren't here when we kind of did the introduction to the book, that seven is an important term for the Jewish mind. It just simply means whole. It stands as representative. It doesn't mean there wasn't a real church in Ephesus. Clearly there was. But more is going on here in this book of prophecy. And there's a way in which even I think these seven churches are going to represent issues within churches throughout the ages. And it doesn't take anything away that there's something very specific for them. But also, like all of other scripture, with hey, a book written to a specific church in Colossae that has implications for churches through the Spirit for all time and all generations. But we looked at the angels, and we understood this here as simply messengers. So angelos, this, this term here for angel, can simply mean messenger. It doesn't have to be a supernatural one. And I think it's best to understand that here in 2.1, that there is a messenger that he is going to give this to, the representative of the church of Ephesus is going to receive this. And I don't know what he would have thought, and I don't know what the church is going to feel when they receive this, but a little bit of history on the church of Ephesus. This is the church that would have been kind of the superstar of churches. And somehow, if you're really good at things, it's almost more hurtful, right, when you're the one that is criticized it have been difficult to hear. I promised last week I'd bring a map. So hopefully it shows up pretty well. Um, you have Italy, you see there, kind of the, the top of the corner and then over. And that's what is modern Turkey where all the churches are. But it's interesting, I think helpful if you haven't seen a map like this, to understand these are seven real churches. And the first one being Ephesus 1 and rotating kind of on that postal route all the way to Laodicea. And this even map kind of lays out some of the issues with each one of those churches along the way. But the church at Ephesus is founded by the Apostle Paul, and it's founded in this important city in the Roman Empire. Probably around 250,000 residents, third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's known for its size, its wealth, its power. At one point, um, there it kind of looks original map, where it's close, you see to that port, um, eventually six miles corroded, and there was no way to get ships in and out, and kind of what happened to the, the city basically ceased to be um, populated, which is true even to this day. Known for not good things, in the sense of known for temple worship of Artemis, was prized as one of the seven wonders of the world. When Paul goes to that church, probably 15 to 20 years after the death of Christ on a second missionary journey. He obviously interacts with, if you go back to, in fact, we'll go there real quick, Acts 18, if you want to turn there with me. Just highlight a few things that I think are, again, helpful of of context because they start so well. But if you look at 18, 18, and it says, and Paul having remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila in uh, Kinkari. 
He had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. And, verse 19, they arrived in Ephesus and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And so you see him enter there and you see um, later on as chapter 19, if you flip over verses eight through 10, that he's preaching, he goes to the synagogue. So chapter 19, verse eight, and after he entered the synagogue, he continued speaking about boldly for three months, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and were not believing, speaking evil the way before the multitude, he left them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And he goes on to talk about miracles performed in Ephesus and then the challenges and the riots, which are ultimately what are going to kind of remove him from Ephesus because they actually listen to Paul and they go and they destroy idols and that gets the city upset. And so ultimately he leaves and gives in chapter 20 a farewell to the Ephesian, uh, the Ephesian elders. And along that way, he actually warns them of false teachers and so they seem that generation to take the warnings seriously and they pass it on to the next generation and they do that part extremely well. Going back to Revelation, it's interesting, just even as a church, of all the letters written in the New Testament, it's likely that there's eight written to the church at Ephesus. That's how important this church is. You have Ephesians, uh, first and second Timothy is written to the church of Ephesus while Timothy is pastoring there. It's likely the gospel of John was written in Ephesus perhaps or even with them being the first recipients. First, second, and third John. And of course here, they receive revelation. You couldn't ask if you look at their pastors, a more legendary team. You have Paul founding the church pretty good church planner if you're going to pick one. Apollos, he's going to leave there. Timothy is going to come in, his son in the faith. And ultimately, John is going to, the apostle John, take his place and he is going to serve there and minister there and teach there until he is exiled to Patmos. So the church at Ephesus is in a privileged place. And they're going to be addressed here with the one who holds the seven stars. I think in a similar way we talked the last week, these visions of Christ give us, and there's a repeat of kind of what we've seen in, in kind of played out each church, but it's a reminder of who is the one writing the authority behind Christ himself, that uh, verse one still in chapter two. This is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lamp stands. That is, the one that you saw, uh, going back to chapter one, in the middle of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, whose head and his hair were white, like wool, like snow, and his eyes are flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it was, has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and having in his right hand the seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword, verse 16 of chapter one, which comes out of his mouth and his face was like the sun shining in its power. It's just this reminder of who is writing this. 
The one when John encounters him falls down dead. Verse 17 of chapter one. Just a reminder, that's, that's who's writing. If, does he have the authority? Absolutely. And he's the one who walks among the churches, the seven gold lampstands, which represent the churches. And there is something even here, not only do you have lampstands in, in the temple within Jerusalem, but this whole idea of walking among, of dwelling. One place thinking of this and just thinking of the whole idea of the tabernacle and, and the Lord and Yahweh dwelling with his people. This in Leviticus 26, that moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not loathe you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Same language, like we talked about in Revelation. So much Old Testament language is picked up. This idea of walking among, that is what you saw, that the, the, the presence of the Lord is in the tabernacle among Israel. And of course, now that we saw the end of Matthew, we were studying it, the veil has been cut and Christ himself, the spirit is in our midst and he dwells among us, which is both comforting, like so much that we're gonna read here, and terrifying, because he sees everything, which means he knows what's going on, which is comforting, but also it's horrifying when you realize all of the good, but all of the bad, all of the sin is exposed. He's there and he sees it. In fact, he says in verse two that I know, right? He has knowledge. He, it's not as if, and you wonder as a church, you're thinking perhaps after 40 years and perhaps maybe the original elders have all died and you have a new group of elders, you have the younger people taking over the church, second, even maybe a third generation. They've heard stories of the miracles. They've heard stories of the founding of Ephesus but they've not seen the risen Christ and perhaps not even seen those miracles. And this is a pretty jarring reminder that the Lord sees, the Lord knows. And that'd be true for all of us. None of us have seen the risen Lord. None of us have seen certain apostolic signs the way the early church did. And so it's very easy for us to start to get to that place where we forget, oh, that's right. We always have a moment where when embarrassing things happen that, phew, no one saw it, right? And then there's your moment of, that's right, the Lord is omniscient. Nothing is hidden from him. And so all of a sudden, maybe you do, you've done something that you would feel extremely shameful if other people knew that you did this, but you realize, oh, no one no one's ever seen that side. No one's seen me. And I'd be embarrassed if they did. And this is a good reminder that the Lord does. The Lord walks among it. It should be a, a way in which one of the attributes of God curbs our own sin. But he knows, and this is the positive side. This is the good news. He knows their deeds, which is interesting because he's gonna call them back to their first deeds. So whatever deeds these are, it would seem they're, they're good, but they're somehow different from the first deeds he's gonna call them back to. I know your deeds, your toil, that is, they're, 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 you, you can't fault these guys for working hard. Um, they're not lazy. They're not casual. They're, they're not letting things fall. They, they toil, they put in the work. And they're not gonna give up. They're persevering, marching forward. 
He knows that you cannot bear with those who are evil. So good news, right? They do not bear with those who are evil. They toil, they persevere, and they do good. I think it's probably what we understand it's deeds, right? Good deeds, good works. They're doing things that are noble and right and good that we would identify with and say, man, outwardly speaking, this looks like a good church. In fact, if you drop down to verse six, yet this you do have. In other words, he even comes back to this and it's probably relating to um, what they do hate in the false teachers, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And if that's what he's talking about here as we move towards the false teachers, that helps us understand that this is a good thing. The Nicolaitans, we don't know a ton, we just that they seem to be one of the Gnostic cults that rose up that specifically said, you don't have to worry about stopping sin. That in essence, they, they, the kind of this dualism of the spirit is good and we've reached a kind of special plane of spiritual life and you can separate that from your sinful deeds in the flesh and what that meant was, and who doesn't love that kind of philosophy is you can do whatever you want in the flesh and it's not sinful because your spirit's separate and it's clean and pure. And so in this case, if you wanna go up to the, the temple of Artemis and um, go to the worship and the, the prostitutes and all those things, then no big deal because your spirit is separated from the flesh. And of course, Ephesus says, no, <laughs> that is not how this works. In fact, they don't bear those teachers who teach that you can do evil and remain in the church. They even, it says in verse two, they go on, that they put to test those who call themselves apostles. Is this capital A? Is this lowercase a? I don't think this is talking about, they're probably not trying to identify with the twelve. But there were other um, people that operated in kind of this capacity of apostle. But probably, again, understanding this is, is, is little a. But they did what John told them in 1 John, right? They tested the spirits. And they said, is this true? Do, are they truly who they say they are? And they are not, he said. And you found them to be false. They didn't just take people's word for it who came into town and said, I was sent from the Lord. They said, tell me more. They tested them and they put them to the test, found that they were to be false. So in that way, they are discerning. Discernment is a good thing. If you look at, uh, especially with the rise of the, not only just the internet age, but then um, blogging and social media, there's a lot of this out there where it, it's easy, of course, to, to be discerning and look at things right from the outside. And it's not to say that is bad. It is a very good thing. But they become ones who want to discern truth from error, discern whether this is good. People who are very gifted in going and saying, well, I see the trajectory. I see how this decision affects this decision and this is going to lead to this down the road. They are good at this. They are very discerning when it comes to who is a good teacher and who is a false teacher. Again, this is good. This is a good thing. This is not stop doing this and start doing something else. This is, this is really good. I know these deeds and these are good things. They're discerning and they even continue, he goes, you have persevered, you have endured for my name's sake because they were at some level, we know, being persecuted. 
but they don't leave the faith. And there's kind of a New Testament, whether it's uh, first and second Peter, whether it's Hebrews, there's always this movement of feeling of there's pressure to walk away from Christ because it's difficult and it's hard and, and they haven't done that. They've been faithful. They have persevered. They have endured for the sake of Christ. In fact, the end of verse three, you have not grown weary. They're happy to get up and do it all over again and go back to work and go back to the fight. These are good and these are noble things. Discernment is important. Doctrine is important. But the key here in the hinge of verse four is it's this, it's doctrine, but devotion is equally as important. You put those two words together, doctrine and devotion. I think it's helpful. It's just an easy way to remember. Because ultimately, as the title of the sermon, discernment is not enough. It is not enough, and I wish it was. I wish I could sit back and go, I went to seminary. I got a couple degrees. I'll just tell you what's right and what's wrong. I'll come and I'll teach on Sundays, check a few boxes, explain the text, and move forward, Right? doesn't have any impact on my life or my family or the way I live. But then you go, oh, that isn't how it works. That's Matthew 5 through 8. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the whole person. You don't become this hypocritical person who is simply out there seeing what's wrong, but it not impacting and it not being internal and doing it for simply the wrong reasons. Discernment is not enough. Again, these are good things. But he goes on to say, there's only one. You could say there's, there's a couple things here. One is going to be what they have lost. And two, it's going to be what they will lose if they continue. And the first thing is what they have lost. And that's the bad news, verse four. I have this against you that you have uh, left your first love. You have left your first love. And then, of course, as you go through this, there's a risk of their lampstand being removed, which I would simply say, probably people will talk about, it. I don't think this is a, someone or a church uh, losing salvation. It's probably the church losing their place of influence. That is, they're going to no longer, perhaps no longer exist in one sense, but no longer be effective for Christ. So they have lost their first love and they will, future tense, lose their, I put it this way, influence if they don't repent. Therefore, verse five, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. It's interesting here as you, again, have to work a little bit harder to go, okay, he uses this I'd say it's really a picture, right? We understand first love, the thing we, that drew us to something, whether it was to a person or was it to something that we love doing in that moment of when it was original and new and fresh. And he says then, because you know things. This has been a good church that was well taught. He appeals, verse five, to remember you can go back in your mind and remember from where you have fallen. That is, you can remember your first love and the deeds you did at first. And he's saying, I don't need us to explain this to you. You know instinctively 
and can remember what you need to do that's going to demonstrate this repentance. I'm always amazed with couples and you know, you're talking with couples who've been married a long time or couples that are having difficulty or even perhaps going through a divorce and you have somebody who at one point stood up, probably at a church, maybe in a barn, and professed not only love for one another, but committed, covenanted together to say, I love you and I'm going to cherish you and you know, in sickness and in health and rich and poor, And now you see them, sometimes not even too many years later, right? And you're going, how did these two ever feel that way, right? I don't always ask that question, but it definitely is the question that crosses my mind. And there is some work there to say, hey, all I know is at some point, remember, you two loved one another enough that you wanted to commit your life together. And you have to kind of say, remember, remember, remember what it was like, it's that kind of experience to say, as the believer, what was it like when you were first saved? What was it like when you were first converted and you, you first understood the truth? And for some, it might not even be conversion. For me, growing up in the church and getting converted rather young, there are some periods where I really got excited with truth and the scriptures, and you couldn't stop me. And they're just sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And I don't know what it would have looked like because YouTube wasn't around then. And if it was, just I'd watch, watch, watch. Then it was more listening, listening, listening. And I can remember back and go, ooh, what are those deeds? What were the things I did at that moment in my life? And I can start to, at least I think, start to fill in what does he mean by the first love? I think he means those things, but maybe even more so than doing, he means both being and he means that there is a motivation, that this is for Christ, not for the institution, right? Not for simply that this is the next meeting, right? We, can, we have these in the church. You, we have elders meetings. We have, uh, you have different committees and it's just checking the box and I'm gonna be faithful and I'm gonna show up. And even then it becomes almost, can be pride, right? That I want to do this because I have to do this and I'm the kind of person, you know, I want everyone to think I'm faithful and you just go through the motions. It seems to be something is going on to this extent with them where their love for Christ, his gospel, and likely then the great commandment, right? Not only is it love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, but love your neighbor as yourself. So the love for people is missing. They're not doing it because they want to influence people. They're doing it simply because that's the way it's always been. All the details we're, we're kind of left out of, but I just think if we use our own lives as examples, you can look back and say, oh, I, I, I kind of know what this looks like. I, I, I spoke of marriage, and um, it's another way in which I think, I don't think if I sat any couple down this morning, or I told my wife, after, let's say, 30, 40 years, and I just was celebrating the fact that we are still together. We survived. If I stood up here and was like, telling you about my 40 years and survival was like the number one thing, like we made it. Do you think she'd be a little offended? Was it that bad? But there's a way in which you go and you start to feel like, well, I was faithful 
And there is a human element of pride that says, but I didn't do what somebody else did. I didn't leave. I stayed. I did what was right. But I don't think anyone would go, that's enough. That's all that we're looking for in relationships. I mean, again, be faithful, remain, survive. Those are good things. But I think we all go and look and say, but isn't there something more? Isn't it more than just staying Mary, but you go back to whether it's the, when you first dated or the honeymoon phase and you go, okay, if my wife asks me to do something, we've been married 12 years. It's not been in a survival. But if she asked me 12 years ago, especially when we were dating, no way I would have said no. There's no way. I would have done it. I would have done it happily. I would have done it better than she asked partially because I'm a little afraid is she going to you know, break up with me or something. But 12 years later, right? It's like, I don't want to do that. And all of a sudden, I don't do things with the same motivation. I think you all have some feeling with that. I have a good friend from high school that I remember when he was dating slash engaged with his, his now wife. And I remember one night he said, I just wanna, I'm going to go see her. And he was in Nebraska. And he literally got in the car and drove to Washington State. That's a long drive. But he's in love. He'll do anything. He wants to see her. So he is going and doesn't matter what it takes. Early on, I, the, the picture I have in mind, um, and maybe men you'll identify with this, is there, there's kind of a, a sense in which when your wife asks you to do something, especially early on, there's, it's kind of like, okay, if they flash the bat signal, I'm going, all right. I can do this, right? I'm going to turn into Superman, Batman, get it done. Year seven, year 35, it's pretty easy to start going, I'll get to that this year, maybe. I think Ephesus has a, a similar issue where they're doing things, but they're not doing them the way they originally did them. Familiarity ultimately does breed some level of contempt. It's nature, it's sinful, but just because you're familiar with it doesn't mean it's less special. And I think that's where they are familiar with good doctrine. They are familiar with a good church. They're familiar with pretty great pastors. I hate to be the guy who followed John. They're familiar and they, they almost take it for granted. They don't have this appreciation because they're so familiar. They just think this is simply normal. Not to belabor Husker football. You're used to winning. Don't even appreciate it. Well, if we didn't win by 60, then we didn't even, we played terrible. And now you look back and go, oh, I guess that would have been nice. I remember when I first came back to Nebraska from uh, when I was ministering at a church in California, and it was a church that was 50 years old and well-established, and there was a culture and kind of a current with that church. I mean, you just... You ask somebody, you know, you want to be in three Bible studies and meet me at 4 a.m. and, you know, we're going to read this 300-page book. I mean, everyone's just like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. No one said no. So I remember maybe naively going to people uh, at that first church and asking people to meet at 6 a.m. and go through a book. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of early. Oh, okay. Maybe we should meet at night. I'm kind of busy. You just got used to. I thought that's what every church was. It's like, oh no, it doesn't, doesn't just happen accidentally. 
or the first time you ever saw the Rocky Mountains, you were probably, that's unbelievable. I know we have a family from the Colorado, Denver area, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, they're just there, right? They're just background. They lose their majesty. Same thing with when I lived in California in the ocean. Unbelievable. Beautiful. And then it's like, oh, it's just the ocean. It's the weirdest thing for me being from a landlocked state. I love the ocean. And I tried to get my friends from my Bible study there in California to go to the ocean. And they're all from California and they're going, oh, nah, I don't want to go. What do you mean? You know, I, I grew up here and we used to go like once a year, but I, who wants to fight traffic? And it's, do you really want to go? I said, like, yeah, let's go. Let's have a bonfire. Let's hang out at the ocean. Let's go surfing. And no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. They never went to the beach. Being the Nebraskan, I thought that's insane. But it was familiar and normal. And so just bred contempt. And for the church at Ephesus, doctrine, good preaching likely, I think I can assume that much from the apostle Paul and his following successors. They started to figure, this is normal. Yawn. No, they need to remember the first love. They need to foster it in their life, a love for Christ. And again, I think more than that even, it's a love for Christ that bleeds into a love for his truth, his word, and his people. Well, how do we do that? Here's just some maybe helpful suggestions as we think about this. I think, number one, I think one way is to not only study, and I say that again, not only because you should study, but you pray. We preached, I preached on prayer not too long ago, and there's something about prayer that is different. There's something about prayer that the Lord uses that is meant to foster that flame. It's easy to be forgetful. It's easy to be unkind when you're not praying. It's pretty, pretty hard if you've been praying for somebody in the church desperately all week long to then see them and forget their name because they've been on your mind. It's pretty difficult to be asking the Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody this week and then to be shocked when it, when it happens, right? You need to not only study, but we, we need to be men and women of, of prayer. I think furthermore, not only the idea of reading day in and day out, again, this is good, read, because if you don't have content, you don't know what, have anything to say, but don't forget that there is relationships. And so not only read, but relate. Everything can become truth, error, doctrine, clarity. What does this mean? And we forget that there is a relational element to the church. And again, it's hard to quite know what was going on here, but they're, they're not commended for their relationships. Um, I don't think that's an accident because that's gonna, if you don't have a love for Christ and you've left your first love, then you're not going to be able to love his people as well. But a love for truth, obviously, is going to lead to, which is good, rebuking, admonishing. That's biblical. We don't want to let people continue in their sin. And so you should tell them to stop sinning. But you also should look to reconcile. Again, it's a love that Christ has, who is exemplified here as giving bad news. And then we'll see here in a moment Good news. He compliments what they do well 
He admonishes them for what they have left, but he also gives hope for reconciliation as they repent and move forward. We're not just burning you know, bridges left and right, but that we're trying to reconcile the best that we can with people. And so just, again, going back to this whole topic of love, that we're not only here to learn, but we are here to love. If there's not a love for Christ, for his church, for his word, at what point, what, what is it for? And again, this is where I think this has gotten backwards at Ephesus. It's, it's no longer, they're doing all those things that had a purpose of serving, glorifying Christ, serving his people. And they're still doing those things, but they're no longer doing it with the right motivation or those things. They've lost their first love and they've just gotten to where they just go through the motions. And so the Lord rebukes them and says, remember It's good for us, we're not a 40-year-old church like these guys, but again, at some point, people are gonna be used to, my kids hopefully are gonna be used to a good church where the word is preached and has good doctrine. But they don't wanna get to a place where they assume it. And they forget that this is about Christ and this is about his people. And so it's a good warning for us as well. Where are we at And how can we foster these things and avoid this kind of rebuke from Christ himself? But lastly, Christ being compassionate, being loving, being gentle, he does give future hope there, six and seven. Future hope that they have an opportunity to listen, opportunity to repent. He says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is good. But he who has an ear, that is, listen. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which is gonna be how these all kind of end. Let the Spirit is speaking. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I think this idea of overcoming is not special or unique to the church at Ephesus. I don't think it's meant to be something that uh, we look for and go, there's an overcomer and there's not an overcomer. I think this is uh, equal to salvation. In other words, the, the believer is an overcomer. You are an overcomer. But just like in Hebrews and just like other passages, this is, he's speaking to, it seems, a church where there is, probably always was in Ephesus, but even more so, people who are not Believers, and there is a call to say, examine your own heart, your own life, where you are. Are you in Christ? Are you an overcomer? And if not, Christ is saying, listen. Listen what to what I am saying. Because I grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which of course, if you know Genesis well, you go, boom, I know exactly what he is saying, the tree of knowledge and of knowledge of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, which we're gonna see later in Revelation as we get to the end of the book. That is to say, you will have eternity, you will have life in heaven forever. And so he doesn't come down and break skulls 
with the churches the way he is with the earth and the nations, right? But he does admonish them and call them to repentance and saying, in this church's case, in other churches, it's going to be different going into the coming weeks. But in Ephesus' case, there is a danger of becoming a loveless church. Isaiah 42 talks about Christ, the Messiah, being a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I'm thankful that even though Christ is coming in glory and power, the the one who has the golden sash upon his chest, whose hair is white like wool and snow and eyes with a flame of fire and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, I am glad that he is still the gentle savior with his church. Yes, tough, just like a good parent, calling them to repentance, but also encouraging and giving hope. So as you look at, I think Providence is a church. Lord willing, we are a church that should be marked by doctrine. Yes, again, those are good things. Marked by discernment, yes. But it should be equally marked by devotion. And we are always at risk, whether this generation or the next generation that is growing up in Sunday school and children's church, that you start to soften And there's a good way in which, again, that fruit softens and ripens, and that's good because that's when it tastes good, but you always have the danger that you um, begin to mellow out in a way that it becomes rotten. So it's my prayer, and hopefully it's yours as well, that as a church, we don't get to a place where we mellow and begin to rot, but pursue truth in love, learning from what you see of Ephesus here. Let's pray. Father, thank you as we looked to your word to be encouraged, admonished where needed. Help us to not simply go through the motions, know all of the answers without being reminded of why we do these things. That we are here not just to sing songs and listen to a sermon to gain just more information that we can show others how much we know, but that it is information that takes us deeper so that we might be lifted up and have a greater understanding of you, that it is worship that we are here for. We're here to see more of you, more of Christ. So use our time this morning for for that end as we are reminded of our great Savior and what he has done for us. We ask this in his name, amen.